Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. A warning for some listeners, we will be talking about some sensitive and difficult topics in this podcast. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Well, some breaking news came out of Washington late on Thursday night, London time, with the announcement by the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, that the Biden administration will be suing the state of Texas, taking out a federal lawsuit. It all relates to a move by Texas which is widely regarded as the most extreme restriction on abortion rights since the landmark 1973 ruling known as Roe v. Wade. It came into effect last week by a decision of the United States Supreme Court. And all of the last week, liberals and Democrats and abortion rights activists have been debating what can be done, what can the Democrats do, what in particular can the Democrat in the White House, Joe Biden, do? Well, now we know the first step that the administration is going to take. But earlier this week, I talked to the Guardian US columnist Moira Donegan, who's written extensively about abortion rights in the US. And I began by asking Moira Donegan to sketch out the political landscape these last 50 years and the role abortion rights as an issue has played in that, charting the nearly 50 years since that landmark decision of Roe versus Wade. The other major story today is the decision of the United States Supreme Court. It handed down a historic decision about abortion. The court said in a... So when Roe v. Wade was decided in early 1973, it was actually a pretty uncontroversial decision. It was a 7-2 to two decision. The uh, majority opinion, which legalized abortion in all 50 states was written by a justice who had been appointed by a Republican president. It was fairly popular. In fact, at the time, abortion rights were popular writ large. That really started to change uh, in the early 1970s when there was a cultural tension that arose in response to the second wave feminist movement, which was very high profile at that time, and an attendant uh, sort of influx of women both into universities and into the paid workforce. And this created a big, great deal of anxiety uh, among American families, American conservatives, and in particular, American white men, which was manipulated to great effect by two very important Republican Party political operatives. Their names were Patrick Buchanan, and one of the issues that's concerned us all, it concerns me deeply, 
We're coming up on the 23rd anniversary of one of the great abominations in American history, the Roe v. Wade decision that declared abortion a constitutional right in America. Who was a speechwriter and advisor to President Richard Nixon, and a woman named Phyllis Schlafly from Illinois, who was an anti-women's rights campaigner. And I urge you, every time you see somebody on television talking about women's rights, that you think to yourself, is this a person who thinks the premier woman's right is the right to kill her unborn baby, because that is the way the feminists look at it. And they successfully together changed the direction of Republican policy and made uh, opposition to abortion access and opposition to the Roe ruling a centerpiece of Republican politics. And what's striking, I suppose, is over these five decades, abortion is, is kind of lopsided as a political issue because it engages Republicans and conservatives who want to push back against Roe v. Wade much more than uh, it engages Democrats who might want to protect abortion rights. Do you think that, is that a fair sort of assessment? I think that is fair, Jonathan. You see an asymmetry of action and political commitment, uh, particularly among party leadership. This is something that Republican politicians, both at the state and federal level, have been very, very active about. And which from Democrats, you see uh, a lot of rhetoric and a lot of uh, candidly fundraising around the protection of abortion rights that has not been coupled with commensurate commitments to introduce legislation that would expand access to abortion. And so Republicans massively engaged on the issue of picking judges and making sure you had, as they saw it, anti-abortion, anti-Roe judges in senior positions. And that's been ticking along for decade after decade after decade. And in some ways, I suppose, it came to a head with Donald Trump picking three conservative judges in his four years as president. Uh, and they were sitting on the bench that last week made this decision. So let's bring it bang up to date. What exactly happened last week that relates to this new law that I mentioned at the top of the podcast? Yeah, so Texas passed a law in its state that would ban abortion in its borders after six weeks of gestation, which is about four weeks after uh, conception. And that in itself is not unusual. You see these laws going forward in Republican-controlled state legislatures with, with some regularity that ban abortion, and, and typically they are thrown out by federal courts before they even go into effect. This one was allowed to go into effect. There was a time-sensitive petition to the Supreme Court that asked the court to stay the implementation of this law in Texas, and the court just ignored the petition. And about 24 hours after it went into effect, the Supreme Court issued an unsigned opinion. It was about a paragraph and a half long saying that they were going to allow the SB8 Texas law banning abortion to take effect. And so just walk us through the provisions because it is, for one thing, it's pretty, you know, it is, as I said, pretty draconian. It's also got the, a few unusual elements in terms of who does the enforcing of this law. But just walk us through the terms uh, as they will affect women in Texas, but also why legally it has this sort of odd shape and character. Yeah, so the bill has two parts. It has a sort of a substantive side, and then it has an enforcement side. And the substantive side, as I mentioned, is is pretty standard for things that we've seen come out of Republican-controlled state legislatures. It is a total ban on abortions after six weeks of gestation. Uh, there is one narrow exception for the life of the mother. The way that it is unique is on this enforcement side, where the Texas state legislature crafted this bill 
specifically so that it would not be enforced by any state agents. Nobody in the government of Texas is tasked with enforcing SBA. Uh, Rather, enforcement is left to private citizens who are deputized to sue anyone who uh, is found to have aided or abetted an abortion after six weeks. And this legal loophole that they created where enforcement of the law is not done by the state, it is in fact done by private actors, is the rationale uh, that the Supreme Court and the lower court called the Fifth Circuit used to allow the law to go into effect. So the Supreme Court said, in effect, look, there's no place for us to come into this dispute because there's no one who could be sued. There's not some Texas authority or enforcement authority who can be sued. It will actually, we have to wait for some some actual cases to come in where uh, some, what, private individual, somebody just walks in and sues a a clinic or a woman who's got an abortion? Who exactly would be uh, the person that would be sued under this new law? Yeah, so the court said that you had to let the law go into effect for it to be challenged properly. So what is likely going to happen now is that someone will step forward to fund a test case in which a clinic in Texas uh, will perform an abortion after six weeks of gestation. This will likely be a situation where everybody is is aware and consenting to the legal risks involved. Uh, And then someone will sue them. Uh, And now the law SB8 does not allow for a lawsuit to be filed against the patient herself who has the abortion. But it does prohibit a lawsuit against anybody who aids or abets that abortion. And there's some question as to what aiding or abetting might entail, right? So you might have uh, material support, such as if a patient gets funding from an abortion fund, or if uh, she is funded by the clinic, that clinic could be sued, the doctor could be sued. There's also potential liability for uh, logistical support. So receptionists who schedule abortion appointments can be sued, even taxi drivers who bring women to clinics can be sued. And there's a potential also to sue uh, those who provide moral support. So say the friend or the sister who accompanies a patient to her abortion appointment could also be subject to a lawsuit as well. See, uh, so that's incredible, the idea of the receptionist who books the appointment. But the other thing I think that will make people's jaws drop is the bounty hunter element. There is money involved in this. Uh, uh, Explain that to us. Yeah, so it's not just that Texas has made random citizens able to sue those who aid or abet abortions after six weeks. It has actually incentivized them to do so. So Texas has uh, put into this law the provision that those who file these lawsuits, which can be anybody either within Texas or any U.S. citizen outside of Texas, these people can receive an award of a minimum of $10,000 if they prevail in court. It could be more than that. And they also receive... Uh, attorney's fees. So these barriers to entries that you would normally see on a lo- for a lawsuit, not just uh, having to prove standing and prove that you've been injured by the opposing party's conduct, but also having to pay for your own lawyer uh, and incur that risk of potentially, you know, shelling out money for an attorney and then not getting paid. All of those risks and barriers to suing have been removed by the Texas statute. So people have nothing to lose and potentially quite a bit to gain by suing those who aid in abet abortions. So $10,000, that is quite an incentive. Who, who will pay that $10,000, Maura? Uh, that will be paid by the people who are found to have aided or abetted abortions. So that receptionist, 
that taxi driver, that doctor, that sister, all of them incur a personal legal liability. Now that they've found that loophole, and it seems to have worked with the Supreme Court saying, look, nothing to do with us, do you expect other conservative or Republican-dominated states in the United States to copy the Texas law and do exactly the same thing? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you don't have to expect them to copy the Texas law. You can take their own word for it. Uh, The Republican-controlled legislature in the state of Florida has already announced that they are going to adopt a similar law. And I expect that you will see this kind of bounty hunter enforcement system applied to abortion bans in more or less every state that has a Republican-controlled legislature very soon. So in red state America, in Republican America, you could get to the point where abortion, in effect, is illegal. Uh, And that is a huge change in the 50 years since Roe v. Wade, where even when abortion rights were under assault, there was still a constitutionally protected right. Democrats surely are now thinking of what response they make. Yeah, and you've seen a few statements in the week or so since this ruling has come down. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the leader of Democrats in the House of Representatives, has announced that she uh, wants her party to move on a bill to codify the constitutional right to an abortion uh, into into federal law. You've seen Joe Biden, the president, uh, issue a statement saying that he is going to look for a full government response to protect the abortion right. Uh, And you've seen the Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, say that he wants to enforce a 2004 act uh, that protects access to clinic entrances as a means of potentially fighting back against this Texas law. You know, all of these are, are things that the Democrats had the opportunity to do before this Texas law went into effect. And there's this sort of renewed urgency, but I think there's also a bit of frustration in the pro-choice and and feminist movements uh, that Democratic leaders are a little bit late to the party on this. Almost, why didn't we secure this right when we could, rather than waiting now till we're in trouble? Precisely. I mean, so it's an interesting thought that of, of, of Nancy Pelosi's of legislating now a constitutional right to abortion or a statutory right to abortion. She's got the numbers in the House. We've well, we've talked about it on the podcast before about some of those, you know, conservative Democrats who make up the fifty-seat uh, non-majority majority Democrats have in the Senate. You know, Joe Manchin in West Virginia. We we talked about him on this show. Can you let's say it does go this direction? Do Democrats have the numbers to get a law passed to preserve uh, abortion rights in law? It's very unclear, and and there's some suggestion that they might not. Joe Manchin, that West Virginia senator who you mentioned, uh, recently gave his support to something called the Hyde Amendment, which is a provision in the American federal budget that has been added year after year that prohibits the federal government from funding abortions through any of its health care programs. And that was a bugbear of the pro-choice movement for many years, uh, the the ban on on federal funding for abortions has helped place abortion treatment out of reach for a lot of poor women. And uh, Manchin signaled his support for that 
that ban being put back into the budget again this year. So there's there's some indication that uh, the more conservative end of the Democratic Party might not have an appetite for what they perceive as a cultural issue. So that so that's the congressional uh, and Capitol Hill element end end of the story. The other is, as you've just referred to, there the Supreme Court itself. They're the ones who made this uh, uh, decision. A lot of people did see this coming. That once you had those three Trump nominees on the court, something like this was going to happen. It's maybe happened sooner than people thought, but then it would happen. And therefore, some Democrats were saying, and again, we've talked about it on this podcast. We had uh, the campaigner Christopher Kang on the show in May saying the only option here is to expand the court and put more you know liberal leaning judges on that court so instead of losing 5 to 4 or 6 to 3 you can start winning um you know 7 to 4 in a expanded court of 11 or 13 or 15 judges do you think this is back on the agenda and you know and 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 might joe biden where before he was wary of such a move might he be persuadable now that he's seen in the real world and a right important to his voters being eroded you know, Joe Biden came into office pledging serious consideration of a number of proposals for Supreme Court ex- reform. There's a court expansion, adding seats to the court. There's uh, several proposals involving term limits for Supreme Court justices, some involving requiring justices to uh, abide by an ethical code. And all of these proposals have been considered by his Supreme Court commission, which is a body of primarily elite lawyers and law professors that is looking into the functioning of Supreme Court. Uh, But that body has already said that they're not going to issue any recommendations. Joe Biden has been very reluctant to take the question of court reform as seriously as many activists would like him to. And, you know, I think one of the signals about this ruling from the Texas case uh, is that, you know, the court overturned Roe in fact, but not did not overturn it in law. There was not a headline on the front page of the New York Times saying Roe is overturned. And there have been uh, no large scale mass protests. Uh, so I think that there is some calculation in Washington that this will blow over, at least for now. I wondered actually on the ground in Texas whether that would now alter be perhaps the politics of it would be inflamed by the comments of the state's governor this week where he said you know we first of all it doesn't force a woman who's uh, got uh, pregnant to go through and uh, continue the pregnancy to term after six weeks and he said he's campaigning to get all the rapists off the streets uh, and a few people pointed out that you know a lot of rapists aren't on the streets they're actually people who the women concerned new in their own families or in their own homes and also this idea of after six weeks people saying that the fact that you've got six weeks to find out is actually not enough it means in reality uh, women could find out they're pregnant only with a week or two to go until this new law kicks in and prevents them having an abortion you know jonathan there's a few either misunderstandings or misrepresentations coming out of the republican right uh, about both how sexual violence works and how women's bodies works you know, this law says that it bans abortions at six weeks of pregnancy. And most people hear six weeks of pregnancy and think that that means six weeks after conception. But in fact, what you're looking at is six weeks after the first day of the last menstrual cycle, which means four weeks after conception and two weeks after a missed period, uh, which 
is very short amount of time. And, you know, if you have an irregular cycle or if you have a medical condition that might make your cycle less common, uh, it could give you even an, an even narrower time frame, which is not to mention that Texas, before this law went into effect, already had fewer clinics than its population demanded because of very strict uh, laws, what are called tra- targeted restrictions on abortion providers or trap laws. And it has mandatory waiting times. So there's a long time to wait to get to an appointment, and then you have to wait after you get your appointment and then get another appointment. So, you know, this is um this is one delay after another imposed uh, within this very short timeline. And providers in Texas said that they were already performing 85 to 90% of their abortions after the time that this law would allow. So this is, in effect, a total ban on abortion in Texas. Let's ask you two bits of politics around this. First, do Democrats now put huge pressure on Stephen Breyer, the oldest and uh, of the three liberals on the court, to do what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not do, and that is to retire while there is a Democrat in the White House and Democrats in the Senate who can ensure there is a liberal replacement. Do you imagine that happening uh, in the light of this decision to ensure that his seat doesn't go to a conservative if he hangs around and waits potentially for a Republican successor to Joe Biden? Yeah, you know, Breyer has sent a number of mixed signals on his retirement. He gave a interview to the New York Times where he said that he wanted to be replaced by somebody who shared uh, many of his legal inclinations, which would suggest that he is considering retirement maybe sooner rather than later. On the other hand, um, you know, he is now the senior liberal justice, which means he gets more challenging and more fun uh, opinion assignments. And, uh, you know, he's he's clearly having quite a bit of fun. He also just released a book. Uh, it came out the same week as this decision on the on the Texas case, uh, arguing that the court is not political and that its reputation has been unfairly maligned. So there's um, not a ton of encouraging signs coming from Justice Breyer, but there is some indication that he is considering retirement. And I believe there's qu- there's quite a bit of enthusiasm for that prospect. I can feel the blood of some of our listeners boiling at the idea of him hanging around because he's enjoying it rather than actually doing what's needed to ensure those liberal seats stay liberal on the court. But the other political question uh, is what the mood of the abortion rights movement now is, whether it feels you know, defeated by this change or whether it's energised and is now in a way going to do what Republicans have been doing for the last few decades, which is mobilising and getting people to vote for candidates who will pick judges on their side of this most central question is you know is there energy out of this or a sense of deflation and defeat there is not a sense of defeat there's a sense of a very acute anger because as i wrote for the guardian this has been something that pro-choice activists have been saying was going to happen for for quite some time uh and there has not been a commiserate sort of um enthusiasm for expanding abortion rights or a commensurate urgency in the sense of, of how dire this problem is from the Democratic leadership. Uh, you say, will they galvanize people to vote for Democrats? And I got to tell you, pro-choice activists feel like they've been getting out the vote for Democrats. They've been getting out the vote for these liberal politicians, and those politicians have not fulfilled their promises. And this is the result. And I suppose 
whether whether you detect any sense in the country at large for thinking and a question like this as serious as abortion rights shouldn't be determined by nine judges in Washington, but actually needs to move out of the legal sphere and move into politics and become an issue decided by democratically elected politicians. Is anyone making that argument? Yes, there there are several uh, commentators and, and a growing popular sense that the power vested into the court is simply too much for nine individual people, uh, you know, who cannot be either promoted or fired from their jobs and have, have very little way to be held accountable. Uh, and, you know, there's a, a growing awareness of the counter-majoritarian institutions in the United States, of the unfairness of the court, of the anti-democratic nature of the Senate. Uh, and there's, you know, a growing discontent with the way our federal government is formulated. Uh, but individual citizens have, have very little power to change that. Moira, always on this show, we do like to ask people a what else question. And my eye is on the calendar, which tells us the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the 20th anniversary, is upon us. You're there in New York City. Just tell us how the city is gearing up, preparing for, feeling about this landmark anniversary. You know, there's a sense of obviously immense grief uh, every Night this week, uh, two lights in the places of the Twin Towers are shining into the sky from downtown Manhattan, where those those buildings fell, and I can see them from my apartment. And it's it's a very um, somber mood of remembrance. And there's also quite a bit of reflection about the period in the years following 9/11 and the ways that, uh, particularly American foreign policy and also domestic policy, were shaped by that event in ways that I think a lot of people here are trying to learn the lessons from. And we've been talking about that right here on Politics Weekly Extra. Moira Donegan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Jonathan, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that is all from me for this week. UK Politics Weekly came back with a bang this week, as did Parliament. Listen back to Wednesday's episode, which can be found on this feed, as Heather Stewart looks at the impact of the Conservative Party's decision, which broke their manifesto pledge, their decision to increase taxes in an attempt to fix the social care issue. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer this week was Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please look after yourselves, and thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 
beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. 